Wars That Shaped the World uses dynamic, immersive audio to depict scenes of warfare. Listener discretion is advised. Beneath a large tent, at a large table in Safwan Air Base, a tiptoe into Iraq across the Q80 border, General Norman Schwarzkopf drank from a can of Diet Pepsi and, thirst assuaged, laid the demands of the United States on the table. Facing him sat two Iraqi generals. Schwarzkopf had just overseen one of the most crushing victories in modern warfare, achieving his combat objectives in a matter of hours. An absolute triumph for his plan and his leadership. Outside the tent, back along the highway of death, as the road out of Kuwait had become known, lay the charred remains of Iraq's invasion force. It was a scene of devastation, a gruesome sight of tanks and vehicles twisted out of recognisable shape, and littered among them the debris of an army in flight, and grimmest of all, the bodies of the highway's scores of dead. It was a scene which those who saw it would never forget, including Schwarzkopf himself, but the war was won, emphatically so, and now the general had to turn his mind to the next task, one that was to prove even tougher. There was a peace to be won. This is Wars That Shaped the World. It was the scariest I'd ever been in my life, but also the most exhilarated. I guess it achieved a great deal. It denied control of the world oil supplies to a guy who obviously is hostile to the United States and most of our friends around the world. The reputation of the Republican Guard and the Iraqi army was forever smeared by this criminal minority which feared neither Allah nor law and had no military honor. This will forever remain a black page in our history. We were coming down into this black, black smoke as we got closer to the airfield. The smoke got very, very dark. It was almost nightlike outside. And then suddenly you look down and below you, you see these huge balls of flame. Man, it looked like what I'd always imagined hell would. The ground stage of the first Gulf War lasted just 100 hours, but 100 hours of combat were all that was required to draw the picture of hell observed by General Norman Schwarzkopf. The commander and mastermind of the coalition's crushing military victory over Saddam Hussein's forces and the liberation of Kuwait was taken aback when his helicopter dropped beneath the clouds as he flew in to conduct the talks to end the war. The retreating Iraqis had set fire to the Kuwaiti oil fields, and in turn, hundreds upon hundreds of their own tanks and other vehicles had been reduced to smoking wrecks on the road out of Kuwait, the highway of death, as it became known. Kuwait is liberated. It was at 8 a.m. on the 28th of February 1991 that the ceasefire came into effect. 
British and US tank men threw open their hatches. Blue Stars and Stripes, Union Jacks, and Saltires from their wireless aerials and tried not to breathe in the foul air floating around their vehicles. For the tank crews and their comrades in the infantry and airborne and above them in the Air Force, there was relief it was all over. Their job was done. For their senior commanders, it was time to settle up. Schwarzkopf and Peter Delabillier, commander of the British forces, flew in to begin peace talks with the stunned Iraqis. Talks which, in Schwarzkopf's certain view, were going to be one-sided. But it is a time of pride. Pride in our troops. Pride in the friends who stood with us in the crisis. Pride in our nation. I'm not here to give them anything. I'm here to tell them exactly what they have to do. But the general added this was not meant to be about humiliation. As specters of Vietnam had haunted much of America's planning for Desert Storm, so ghosts of Versailles slipped into the large tent on Safwan Airfield, where the two sides stared across the table. Schwarzkopf was to make concessions to the Iraqis, and there are those who believe even these slim pickings were enough to enable Saddam to keep his grip on power. The rights and wrongs of the aftermath of the First Gulf War have divided opinions ever since. Did the ceasefire come too soon? Should the coalition have pushed up Highway 8 all the way to Baghdad and toppled Saddam and his poisonous regime? Did the outcome of Gulf War I make Gulf War II inevitable? At the time, there were few significant voices raised against the ceasefire. The images of devastation on the highway of death had been beamed around the world. This was the first truly media war, with 24-hour news channels and large numbers of reporters in the conflict zone. The pictures had an effect, and from politicians and their military men, there was universal agreement. Enough was enough. In a purely military sense, we had achieved the objective. The view of General Rupert Smith commander of the British 1st Armoured Division, was widely shared among the military. The coalition force had a mandate from the United Nations to kick Saddam's occupying force out of Kuwait. And that had been done. The swiftness of their military victory had surprised the coalition's own generals as much as anybody. I guess our biggest overall intelligence shortcoming was in building Saddam Hussein and his forces into the monster that just wasn't there. Going into battle... This made us more gun-shy than we should have been. The intelligence was correct when it came to the size of the Iraqi army, one of the world's largest. And yes, the Republican Guard were there and potentially a formidable opponent. But the remainder was made up of conscripts, most of whom had no desire to be in the army, let alone on foreign soil facing one of the most destructive forces assembled in the history of warfare. It's estimated up to 50,000 Iraqis deserted once the airstrikes began. The coalition planners had taken the size of the Iraqi army at face value. It was large in number, but small in threat. The coalition tanks, aircraft and overall firepower were a decade ahead. Yet the military were also quick to rail against any suggestion this had been an easy war. Walter Boomer commanded the U.S. Marines. The idea this was somehow a non-war is totally wrong. It was, for example, the largest deployment of the U.S. Marine Corps under one command in the history of the United States. In the beginning, we were vastly outnumbered. By the time we completed our build-up, I had almost all of the entire U.S. Marine Corps. And if you looked at the Iraqi battle order, we absolutely needed all that. But because of good planning and execution at the end, it seemed as if we hadn't needed all those troops. But we did need them. And we didn't know how it was going to be until the very end. It could have all gone very differently. Peter de la Billière, commander of Operation Granby, 
the British element of Desert Storm, believed it was the right time to stop. But he also believed British, US and French forces could have been in Baghdad in another day and a half. This was the dilemma. Tom King, then Britain's defence secretary, suggested afterwards the ceasefire came 24 hours early. In another day and night of fighting, King believed two further Republican Guard divisions would have been destroyed. Instead, they remained a force in Iraq strong enough to suppress the uprisings that began in the wake of the war. Without them, King argued, Saddam would have been unable to suppress the rebellions and would most likely have been deposed. That is wishful thinking. Schwarzkopf believed differently as he laid out post-war, but remember, long before the second conflict in the Gulf began in 2003. We had accomplished what we'd accomplished with so few casualties, and another day of the war would only cause more people to die that didn't need to die. On the question of going to Baghdad, if you remember the Vietnam War, we had no international legitimacy for what we did. As a result, we first lost the battle of world public opinion, and eventually, we lost the battle at home. In the Gulf War, we had great international legitimacy in the form of eight United Nations resolutions, every one of which said, kick Iraq out of Kuwait. Did not say one word about going into Iraq, taking Baghdad, conquering the whole country, and hanging Saddam Hussein. That's point number one. Point number two, had we gone on to Baghdad, the coalition would have ruptured and the only people that would have gone would have been the United Kingdom and the United States of America. And oh, by the way, I think we'd still be there. We'd be like a dinosaur in a tar pit. We could not have gotten out and we'd still be the occupying power and we'd be paying 100% of all the costs to administer all of Iraq. But I think more importantly, there's a strategic consideration here. Saddam Hussein portrayed that war from the beginning as this is not a war against Iraqi aggression against Kuwait. This is the Western colonial lackey friends of Israel coming in to destroy the only nation that dare stand up to Israel. That is Iraq. Had we proceeded to go on into Iraq and take all of Iraq, I think that you would have millions of people in that part of the world who would say Saddam was right, that that was the objective. Instead, we went in, we did what the United Nations mandate asked us to do, and we left and we didn't ask for anything. In the desert spring of 1991, Schwarzkopf's immediate priority was the ceasefire talks. The U.S. considered holding them on the USS Missouri, the battleship on which the Japanese had surrendered in 1945, before settling on Safwan, an airbase a few miles inside Iraq. U.S. Central Command believed the Big Red One, the 1st Infantry Division and part of 7th Corps, had already occupied Safwan. In fact, the proposed venue for the talks was still held by a small Iraqi force. Schwarzkopf exploded. His increasing annoyance at what he saw as 7th Corps' slow progress during the fighting came, in his own words, boiling out. 7th Corps received both barrels from the livid general. The big red ones swiftly surrounded the airfield and ordered the Iraqis out. As Apache helicopters hovered overhead, the Iraqis withdrew as quickly as they could. At a few minutes past 11am on the 3rd of March, General Schwarzkopf sat down at a long table housed in a large tent as the senior representative of the coalition. President Bush had chosen not to send anyone from the State Department, happy to leave it to his general on the ground. On the other side of the table sat Lieutenant General Sultan Hashim Ahmad, Deputy Chief of Staff at Saddam's Ministry of Defence, and Lieutenant General Salah Aboud Mahmoud. They'd travelled from Basra. On the way out of the city, their convoy had been fired on by rebel Iraqis. 
they required an escort of Republican Guard tanks just to get safely through their own territory. At the entrance to the venue, all participants were searched and weapons surrendered amid tight security. The Americans had prepared a military show to flex their muscle and display arrogance. The soldiers were fit with large physiques as if they were handpicked and brought there to impress us. The mood in the tent was tense. Delabillier, seated behind Schwarzkopf, later wrote to his wife that the Iraqi delegation were intelligent, but shifty. I decided there and then that I trusted them even less than before. My abiding impression is one of dislike, distrust, and a sense of all the evil that exists in Saddam Hussein and members of his regime. Schwarzkopf, can of Diet Pepsi at his elbow, made no attempt to put the Iraqi delegation at ease. Instead, laying out his immediate demands. Red Cross access to all prisoners of war, return of all prisoners, return of the dead, identification of all minefields, and any chemical weapons or booby traps in Kuwait. The Iraqis replied they had 41 POWs and were then gobsmacked when Schwarzkopf declared the coalition held 60,000 Iraqis. Not every matter was settled to the coalition's satisfaction. The Iraqis claimed any Kuwaitis who'd been moved across the border had done so out of choice. Some were returned, many weren't, and for several hundred, their whereabouts remain unknown. I want you to know that these 100 soldiers that are about to get off the airplane just less than 48 hours ago were with their units in Iraq, where the division is located... Faced with a no-fly zone, the Iraqis asked to be able to use helicopters within their own borders. Necessary, they claimed, for helping repair damaged infrastructure, move the wounded, carry supplies to communities running short of necessities, and so on. The use of fixed-wing aircraft within Iraq was not allowed, but the Americans backed down on helicopters. Schwarzkopf was later to say he'd been suckered. And to return to our homes and our loved ones. In the weeks ahead, Saddam used helicopter gunships to crush rebellious forces in the country. The rebellion began in the south and soon spread to the Kurdish areas in the north. Within a month, Saddam's regime had effectively lost control of all but Al-Anbar province. Yet Saddam hung on and on. Rashida's husband was a Kurdish nationalist. Iraqi soldiers shot him in front of her. Iraq's military had been crushed in terms of hardware. 80% of their tanks and 90% of their artillery lay wrecked in Kuwait, the southern deserts of Iraq, and along the highway of death. With their economy also a smoldering ruin, there was little chance of Saddam being able to replace like with like for his battered armed forces. They thought they had a real chance when the Gulf War ended. Saddam was weakened and the West was talking of a new world order, of justice for oppressed minorities in the Middle East. A month after the talks at Safwan, the UN issued Security Council Resolution 687 which included reparations Iraq would have to pay Kuwait, and created a special commission of weapons inspectors to check all chemical weapons and ballistic missiles with a range of more than 93 miles. The inspector's role was to become a crucial one in the years ahead, and the Second Gulf War loomed larger and larger. A more immediate task was clearing the battlefields. It was a grim job. We had to go and pick up the tanks, clean them up, pick up explosives, and, you know, pick up if there was any dead inside the tanks, scrape them out and leave the tanks for the engineers. It just stunk horrible, and that was a horrible memory. We made a joke. Hamburger meat, because that's what it looked like when they were, you know, open and then bloated for three days. It was the only thing we could do. I did vomit the first time we were there. 
Oh, I, I don't want to think of people as hamburger meat ever, ever, ever again. The cleanup aside, the US military considered job done once the Safwan talks were concluded and hurried to get their boys and girls back home. 5,000 a day were flown out and returned in marked contrast to the men who'd served in Vietnam and Korea. The men and women of Desert Storm were greeted as heroes. There were ticker tape parades, and in Washington, a victory parade. Schwarzkopf moved CENTCOM HQ back to Tampa six weeks after the negotiations at Safwan and was acclaimed a conquering hero. In the UK, too, the modern-day desert rats were cheered home. Church bells rang to greet the victory. Throwing a dictator at the head of a murderous regime out of an invaded, peaceful nation was almost universally regarded as a job well done. As did, to an extent, Saddam and his acolytes. Perhaps not well done, but a botched job they'd got away with. The first Gulf War was never viewed by Saddam and his regime as a defeat. Within Iraq, the ceasefire was portrayed as a cave-in from the coalition. They couldn't break the Republican Guard, so they called off the conflict. It was, of course, nonsense, but enough believed it to keep Saddam's grip on his generals and ministers. They did not dare attack Baghdad, said Saddam. President Bush had made Hitler comparisons before the war, and afterwards there was certainly one similarity to 1920s Germany. The stab in the back myth was seized on by Saddam's generals as to why they'd been forced to the negotiating table. But Saddam wouldn't let his generals forget the war. A year after the conflict, he himself read memoirs by Schwarzkopf and Delabillière, dismissing them as a pack of lies. Nevertheless, he sent copies to each of his generals and demanded they read them too. The Iraqi military held a series of conferences to discuss lessons learned from the war. Saddam's blinkered conclusion was simple. He'd won. He'd taken on the Americans and survived. He felt stronger than ever, despite the evidence of his state crumbling around him. So, Saddam remained in situ, and his people suffered. Subi Tafik was a retired army officer. The sanctions and isolation brought Iraq to its knees. After the war, my whole monthly salary, a substantial income at the time, could barely buy me a pack of cigarettes. The people of Kuwait suffering was at least over. The occupation had seen widespread use of arrest, terror and torture. Some 6,000 Kuwaitis were arrested, around 1,000 killed, and many hundred more disappeared. Young men were shot near their homes and in front of their families. This method was used by the occupiers to terrorize the people. Arrests, interrogation, torture, punishments and killings were carried out in an arbitrary manner. On average, five or six bodies were brought to the hospital each day. All were males. Many bore marks of torture, the extinguishing of cigarettes on the body, burning of the skin with heated metal rods, uh, application of electricity, cutting off of the tongue and ear, gouging out of the eyes and the breaking of limbs. In most cases, the immediate cause of death appeared to be a single shot. The largest losses in the war were among Iraqi civilians. 
Definite numbers have never been established. It's estimated nearly 4,000 were killed, including several hundred in a US attack on a bunker in Amiria, a suburb of Baghdad. Many thousand more were to die in what followed, some in the rebellions across the country, others through disease and illness. The number of Iraqi soldiers and civilians believed to have died either directly or indirectly from the war is estimated to be anything up to 200,000. With so many power stations destroyed, the country struggled to generate enough electricity, and that caused a public health disaster. Hospitals and water treatment centers could not function. The inevitable result was a death sentence for thousands of the country's poorest. The economic decline that had begun before the invasion, one of Saddam's reasons for going to war, accelerated post-war. Sanctions hit hard too. From September 1990, rationing was introduced in some areas. Inflation rose, meat, flour and sugar became difficult to buy. A United Nations report concluded that the coalition bombing had effectively returned Iraq to the pre-industrial age. The US military insist they did what needed to be done. No more, no less. We didn't create the mess that exists in Iraq. We didn't create the difficulty between the Sunnis and the Shiites and the Kurds. We didn't draw the map that created Iraq in 1920. If I'm not mistaken, I think it was done by British diplomats. What we came to do, and what the UN authorized us to do, and what the US Congress authorized us to do, was to kick the Iraqi army out of Kuwait, restore the legitimate government of Kuwait, bring about a new relationship in the region, and please try to do it with a minimum loss of life. All of that was accomplished. General Colin Powell, chairman of the US Joint Chiefs of Staff, had served in Vietnam, and the fear among the US command of ending up in another nightmare scenario dominated American thinking and planning. And from that perspective, it worked. The US suffered 148 casualties killed in action. The British, 47, nine to so-called friendly fire. In all, fewer than 200 coalition troops were lost as a direct result of enemy action. After the US, the largest loss of life among the coalition befell Senegal, who saw 92 men killed in a single transport plane crash. It was a casualty rate far, far below what had been predicted by even the most optimistic of the US planners. The figure feared by the Pentagon was some 7,000 dead. The outcome was a triumph for American military might. The timing of the war was ideal for the US military. There was no armed service in the world to match not only the size, but also the equipment and technology of the US. Under Ronald Reagan, the US had spent billions on defense. Yet with the Cold War over, Questions were beginning to be asked in Washington whether this money might be better spent elsewhere. Instead, the US military were able to give a crushing demonstration of their power, and that dazzled their political leaders for years to come. All the brave men and women in uniform serving our country and land. Thank the men and women who are defending our freedom. When it comes to our troops, we can never thank you enough. They will suffer consequences like nobody has ever suffered before. The technology and superior kit possessed by the US and British and French forces was decisive in the coalition's low casualty rate. From night vision to stealth bombers to drones and satellites, the US were a decade plus ahead of anything the Iraqis had in their armory. The war was an economic win for the US too. From the beginning, the US response had to an extent been driven by economic reasons. 
Quite simply, the oil-needy US consumer economy couldn't let Saddam threaten 40% of the globe's oil supply. To the public back home, it seemed a clean win. A quick in, quick out, and at little cost. For all the ubiquity of the media in the first 24-hour news channel war, there was barely any footage of dead or wounded Americans on a distant, alien foreign field. Another notable difference to Vietnam. Americans tied yellow ribbons to their front yard trees and welcomed their boys home with victory parade. The cost of the war has been estimated at $71 billion, of which the Gulf countries paid two-thirds and then spent billions more over the following decades buying US and British arms and equipment. Indeed, the worry of how British tanks and other military hardware would perform in the war was initially a pressing one among hard-headed sections of Whitehall. A poor performance by the Challenger tank and lucrative future arms sales and contracts would disappear. Worries over how the British equipment would cope in the desert occupied minds top to bottom, from the Ministry of Defence to the young soldier sitting in the driving seat of his challenger preparing to go into battle. Both were left satisfied, or perhaps relieved. Great Britain is going to have a new Prime Minister tomorrow morning. Members of the Conservative Party in Parliament voted today to make John Major the new Prime John Minister. John Major replaced Margaret Thatcher as Premier during the conflict. Who says you can't change leaders during a war? But it made no difference, either to the conduct of the war or what happened next. Thatcher had proved a rock-solid supporter of President Bush, including delivering an early pep talk to encourage the US President in his course of action. But she had also sat in office during a time when the British Army struggled to make ends meet. Cuts were the order of the Thatcher days. It was an army that looked good on stage, but behind the scenes, the stagehands were struggling to hold the set together. There was plenty of smoke and mirrors. Afterwards, back home, or rather back in their bases in Germany, the British veterans sought to return to life as defenders of Western Europe against the Soviet Union. But the Cold War had thawed, the USSR was falling apart, and the government returned to its programme of military cuts. These years changed the face of our nation, and they changed the fate of our nation. Infantry and cavalry regiments that fought in the Gulf had collected their final battle honours. And they changed them both for the better. We won the Cold War, we beat the trade unions, we slew the dragon of inflation. Options for change, a cheery label for a savage programme of cuts, saw 40,000 soldiers earmarked for redundancy over four years. I'm just a wish away. None of those things would have happened but for the 18 years of Conservative government. Among the famous regiments to face amalgamation were the Queen's Royal Irish Hussars. For those that survived, cost mattered more than ever. The pennies were counted. The CEO of the Royal Scots had dumped all his vehicle's windows and windscreens in the desert, Concern their reflections in the sun may make them an easy target for Iraqi helicopters. Back at base in Germany, their absence was noted. They must be returned at once, the Royal Scots were informed. The CO gave the men from the ministry a grid reference in the Iraqi desert. The army had raised a division to go to Iraq by effectively stripping bare the rest of an entire corps. Tanks left in Germany sat there with no engine. But once in the Gulf, there is no denying the success of Operation Granby, the largest British deployment since the Second World War. And a success not just at the sharp end, the fighting, but also in the extraordinarily effective logistics effort behind the military success. We'd been given time to conduct workup training before we launched, and once we did, we had air supremacy, significant reinforcement, the best equipment and the very best of soldiers. Despite the fact 
we had transited minefields, attacked an enemy who was reported to have 125 brigades of war-hardened troops, and one who would not hesitate to use chemical weapons, we suffered virtually no casualties. We were outstandingly lucky. We were luckier still to have been part of such an overwhelming success, because nothing makes command easier than success. others returning home to Britain and America who were not so fortunate. It was a rapid decline once the symptoms began and no one could explain how, as a fit and healthy person, I had succumbed to a mystery illness. I felt lost and forgotten. In June 1991, I received my first attack on the right side of my head. I could not look at any form of light without extreme pain. My vision blurred on my right eye and the whole right side of my face felt numb yet painful at the same time. I still feel this pain at present and it has not gone back to normal ever since. Even when I was still in the military, I was getting illness after illness, breathing problems, chronic fatigue. And when I questioned whether it could be anything to do with my service in the Gulf or what we were exposed to, the military line was... You're talking nonsense. There's no evidence. Two paracetamol. Crack on. Gulf War syndrome remains an unresolved issue. The Royal British Legion estimates as many as 30,000 of the 50,000 British service personnel who served in the Gulf have been, or still are, affected. Just in 2022, a new report released in the US suggested sarin, the nerve gas, was responsible. The Iraqis never use it as a weapon, but when bases where it was stored were bombed, it leaked into the atmosphere. Three times as many US frontline veterans of Desert Storm are dying of cancers compared to those stationed further back. Is that because of the effects of plumes of smoke from chemical weapons dumps? In Iraq, women have experienced birth abnormalities and others higher cancer rates, similar outcomes to veterans in the US. The National Gulf Veterans and Families Association represents former British soldiers who have fallen ill. For 30 years they've been disowned, ignored and lied to by consecutive governments with no positive answers to their questions about exposure to toxic substances and gases and the effect it had on them both physically and mentally. The US government estimate that one in six of their veterans suffer with Gulf War syndrome. Symptoms are varied and complex, ranging from post-traumatic stress disorder to reduced coordination, chronic fatigue, cognitive problems and muscle pain. The US government accept that symptoms differ to those diagnosed after other wars. The British standpoint has been different, with a marked reluctance to accept this as an issue unique to the conditions of the Gulf War. It's not post-traumatic stress syndrome. If it were... Why wouldn't we have the same type of ill health levels after other wars? Like, like the Falklands or after serving in Northern Ireland? By denying something's going on, the government are behaving in a way that's morally wrong. They're not respecting the very people who went to war for this country and continue to suffer. The use of depleted uranium shells has been suggested as another possible cause. The US Navy later took them out of service due to safety reasons. The hurriedly mixed cocktail of drugs given to coalition personnel to protect against chemical weapon attack is seen as another possible reason. It's the combination of the drugs rather than individual vaccines that have raised fears of long-term effects. Troops were given injections and pills against, among other things, anthrax and bubonic plague. Vaccinations were codenamed Victor, Cutter, Porton and Biological. Even the medical staff administering them weren't told what was in them or what each one was specifically for. Side effects were severe, 
raising a significant fever for 48 hours. Charles Rogers, commanding officer of the Staffords, didn't let his battalion have the second injection. According to one general in Whitehall, the speed at which the vaccination programme was assembled left something to be desired in terms of testing. It was a balance of risk, it was decided. General Rupert Smith, commander of the 1st Armoured Division, hinted to his men not to complete the course of inoculations. After inoculations, for about three days, only half the division was operative. A day before the attack, we got instructions for everybody to be inoculated against bubonic plague. Nobody could tell me what the side effects were going to be, so I objected and was eventually told it had to be done for political reasons. I issued the order with the addition that the general officer commanding was not taking this inoculation. According to Patrick Cordingly, commander of the 7th Armoured Brigade, he asked the Ministry of Defence about vaccination testing and never received a satisfactory reply. Sean Rustling was a sergeant in the Royal Army Medical Corps. It's an insult that the Ministry of Defence doesn't recognise the condition suffered by me and so many others. At the end of the war, and in the months that followed, the first Gulf War was regarded as a triumph for President Bush and his military, and also for the United Nations and its Secretary-General, Javier Perez de Cuellar. Unlike what was to come in Iraq just over a decade later, the action taken had the full support of the UN, a stance that is unimaginable today. The Council's authority and credibility were severely undermined. Regrettably, the Security Council failed to do it. And was in marked contrast to the US in Vietnam or the disastrous British Suez assault in 1956. Fifteen Security Council resolutions were passed from August 1990 to April 1991, beginning with embargoes and sanctions, which reduced Iraq's export income by 90%. It was Perez de Cuella who played a key role in persuading George Bush to negotiate first with the Iraqis. When that avenue was exhausted, Security Council support gave legitimacy to the use of force. We'd gone to war under a UN mandate to evict Saddam Hussein from Kuwait, not to go into Baghdad and drag him out by his heels. If we'd given in to pressure to do that, we'd have lost the whole of the Arab coalition, and after going to war to uphold international law, we'd have ended the war breaking international law. It was only in the years after the war that the notion of President Bush harboring a deep-rooted, lingering regret for not having deposed Saddam emerges. At the time, there was almost universal approval and support for what the coalition had done. From the President to the Pentagon, the firm belief was that they had stopped at the right moment. They were not there to depose Saddam. The US and the UK had no strong view on whether he should or should not remain in power. They were happy for him to stay in situ, so long as his armed forces remained within Iraq's borders. That was the view in 1991 and for the next few years. Oh my God, so both towers are now. believe that a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center. That, of course, changed dramatically in the wake of the September 11 attacks, when George Bush Jr. included Iraq in his axis of evil. Many saw that as an attempt to finish what his father had started. Except that was a rereading of history. I don't believe the events of 1991 contributed to subsequent events or to the Second Gulf War, except in one regard. Saddam survived. But I do think the failure of the sanctions regime removed huge pressure from Iraq, thereby allowing Saddam Hussein to survive. The leaking away of sanctions through the 90s and the failure of so many nations to impose them allowed this profoundly bad man to talk of his weapons of mass destruction in order to survive in power. This led to the Second War. At the time, nobody imagined that he could or would survive beyond the liberation of Kuwait. I think most of us thought that. In the traditions of Iraq, 
somebody from inside would remove him. The First Gulf War had a clear objective and near universal support. Legally, it was on firm ground and raised and held support from across the Arab and Muslim world. Egypt, Morocco and Syria sent troops. Pakistan sent 10,000 troops. Afghanistan, 300 Mujahideen fighters. There were clear goals and clear boundaries. China did nothing to block UN Security Council resolutions. But, like so many wars throughout history, the Gulf War did not mean an end to conflict in the region. Instead, it laid the foundations for another. The region was restored to how it had been six months earlier, except Saddam, previously a hold-your-nose ally, was now an international pariah, a monster even in some eyes. If my division commander ever ordered me to turn my guns against Saddam Hussein, I'd do it. But who will be the officer to give this order? I will never give this order. But I will follow the man who does. Nobody gave the order, and Saddam remained in Baghdad, weakened and desperate. He'd do anything to stay in power because the other option was fatal for him. Meanwhile, the people of Iraq suffered. I think the Iraqi leadership are now convinced that it cannot run the country as it had done before. The US strengthened its global position and its place of power within the main oil-producing region of the world. But in so doing, it stirred a murderous hardcore from Saudi Arabia and elsewhere to take radical, violent action. Action that a dozen years later was to bring the circle of violence back to Iraq once more. into the World Trade Center. We don't know anything more than that. I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. And the people... And the people who knock these buildings down will hear all of us soon. States and Britain against those accused of carrying out the September 11th. That regime pledged to reveal and destroy all its weapons of mass destruction as a condition for ending the Persian Gulf. But in 1979, the year before Saddam came to power, was richer than Portugal or Malaysia. Today it is impoverished. 60% of its population dependent on food aid. Thousands of children dying. The United States military forces captured Saddam Hussein alive. I can report that as promised, the rest of our troops in Iraq will come home by the end of the year. The birth last year of the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria brought both battlefields together.
next on Wars That Shaped the World. On Sunday, June 25th, communist forces attacked the Republic of Korea. South Korea would be gobbled up to be added to the rest of Red Asia. There was just mass hysteria on the position. It was every man for himself. The shooting was terrific. There were Chinese shouting everywhere. Bodies blown up. The Americans run over with tanks. Panic and shooting in the nights. Get your men up that road and hold it. Stop the Reds, do you understand? If we do have another world war, it will be an atomic war. This series featured Amal El Horani, Neza Aldarazi, Terry Silverthorne, Casper Michaels, Sharice Silvestri, Amina Rose Jamil, Youssef Jamil, Ali Al Safu, Tim Skinner, Thomas Mitchells, Abdul Rahman Al Hato, Kutaiba F. Abdel Haq, Tony E. Walker, Dorian J. Ahmad Al Al Ketbi. Wars That Shaped the World was a Goal Hanger Podcasts production. It was produced by Holy Smokes. This series was written by Robin Scott Elliott. It was narrated by Paul Waggett. The producer was Neil Fern. The executive producer was Tony Pastor. smokes.